Good morning. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 8, uh, we'll be going from Genesis 8, 20 to 9, 17 as we continue in our study of Genesis this Lord's Day and walking through God's Word together. Uh, this has been a, a week where most of us have found ourselves watching a lot of news and seeing the events unfold before us in the world, seeing the, the ground shake there in Boston because of the evil of man, seeing the, the ground shake there in Texas uh, as a fertilizer plant blew up, seeing even the ground shake there in China where many have lost their lives due to an earthquake. In the midst of shaking ground, we stand on firm ground in Christ. And we can come to God. We do not have all the answers, but we trust in the one who does. And today as we read this text, as we pray for our time, I also want us to be mindful of so many who are mourning, who are hurting, to pray for them that they might find firm footing in the gospel as well. So if you would follow along with me as we look now to God's word, beginning in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. If you've been with us, you know that as we walk through Genesis, we are now at the point where Noah is exiting the ark, and that is where we pick up here in verse 20. So if you would follow along with me. This is what God's inspired word says to us. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the sea, fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning. For the life of man, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. 
When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. If you would pray with me now. Father, we come to you in Christ's name. And Lord, we pray that you would bless us. I'm reminded of the psalmist's words who says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor seat in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Father, help us in these moments to meditate on your word, and through it, God, would you override, would you drown out the counsel of the world that surrounds us, that lures us, that entices us towards wickedness, that we might walk in faith with you. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have been with us up until this point in our study of Genesis, you know the ground that we have covered. But just as by way of review, I want to touch on a few things that we've looked at already in hopes that you will see that there are some very strong themes in the Scripture. Themes that, that we need to understand. Themes that are there for a purpose that help us understand who God is. <clears throat> for example, we see God consistently through the Scripture as a God who initiates. With His creation, He initiates with man. We see God in Genesis 1 as the sole initiator of creation. He is creating. He is providing. He initiates creation. He initiates rest there on the seventh day. Rest that we will see the Scripture invites us to come into ultimately through Christ. He not only initiates in creation, initiates with man, but even in man's rebellion, God still pursues them. God initiates structure and He gives them the garden and He gives them plants to eat and He gives them rules to live by, but in their rebellion and their deception, they sin. But even in their sin, God comes after them. So that we see, for example, in Genesis 3, chapter 8, but the Lord God called to man. He comes to man in his sin and pursues him. He's gracious, but he also gives consequence. And as a result of the fall, death enters. There's consequence of the fall. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. And then as we've continued through Genesis 4, Genesis 5, we see further consequence of the fall, further fruit of sin. Is their children, Cain and Abel. Cain takes his brother Abel's life, but again, God initiates, God pursues, God goes after Cain, God comes to Cain, God speaks to Cain, God comes to Adam and Eve, He provides for them a substitute in their son Seth. His name means substitute in the place of Abel. And then we've seen as we followed through there, Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 5, how you have this wicked line from Cain and this righteous line from Seth and how eventually those lines begin to intermarry and it gets to the point where there essentially are none left that are righteous other than Noah who becomes righteous because God initiates with him. The scripture says that Noah finds grace. God offers him grace. And in response to that grace, Noah then walks in righteousness, walks in blamelessness, He walks with the Lord. Why? Because God initiates in his life. Not only that, we see God initiates judgment and consequence for man. Wickedness has spread around the earth, and so God brings the flood. But as he does, God initiates salvation in the ark. And we see there that picture of the ark, that through the faith, the obedience, the righteousness of one man, 
many are saved. Noah's family and those who would come after him. It is a picture for us of the gospel. Through Christ, through one man's faith and obedience, we can be saved. All these things we see, this theme in the scripture, is because God is initiating, God is pursuing. And it's important that we remember that as we come to the remainder of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, because here we see God initiating a covenant with Noah. Now we've seen essentially God have a covenant there with Adam, but this is the first time this language is used, this language of covenant. And so it's important that we fit it in that theme because when we think of covenants, when we think of contracts, when we think of agreements, most of us, when we think of those things, we think of them rather skeptically. Some of you have sat across the table from someone knowing that you needed to read the fine print if you were going to do a deal with them. Others of you have received offers and you look at those offers and you think, well, that's what it says, but there's something in the fine print, there's something beneath the surface. This probably is too good to be true. We've learned to become very skeptical of those who want to shake our hand and make a deal, that they're in it for another reason, that they're going to try to take advantage of us. And yet that is not what we see in a covenant with God. A covenant with God is unilateral, meaning it is God-initiated, God-empowered, God-sustained. It is a faithful God who creates and sustains this covenant with man. If we've seen anything up to this point in Genesis, we've seen the faithlessness of man but we've seen the faithfulness of God. And we'll continue to see that as we study through this text. So with those things in mind, I want to look at just a few things that we learn here about God's covenant that He makes with man through Noah and through His sons. And the first thing we learn is this, is that God's covenant is gracious. God's covenant is gracious. Verse 20 begins by telling us that Noah builds an altar to the Lord and he takes some of every clean animal and every clean bird and he offers burnt offerings on the altar. Why? May be a question that we ask. I mean, you imagine you're in this scenario, you've been on this boat trapped in with these animals and your family and it's been over a year. You now get off the boat and the first thing you want to do is what? Rest? Come up with a plan? What does Noah do? Noah gets off the ark, and he worships God. Why? Because God has been gracious to Noah, and Noah's worship is a response to the grace of God. Noah, left to himself, deserved to be wrecked and destroyed like the rest of all living things, and yet God has preserved life through Noah. And Noah gets off this ark, and he worships God. And notice how he worships Him. It says he takes some of every clean animal and every clean bird and he puts them on an altar and he sacrifices them to God. Now consider for a moment. God has destroyed all of creation except for what is in the ark. We've already learned in our study of Genesis that Noah took with him, God provided for him on the ark, seven pairs of clean animals and clean birds. We don't know if any of them may have had offspring, but it was only a little over a year, so if they did, it wouldn't have been that many. We know that Noah's already offered up some of these living birds and seeing if the land was dry yet. And so just think about this for a moment. Noah does not have ample bunch of provision in front of him. Noah's got a handful of these animals. 
And he has taken from what he has, and the scripture doesn't tell us how many, but it says some. He takes some of every one of them, so probably more than one of each of them, and he puts them on an altar and he sacrifices them to God. This this is his worship. This is not Noah saying to God, well, God, I'm going to return to you a small portion of what you blessed me with today. This is Noah saying, God, this is all yours. And this is my best. And you think about that for a moment. Some of you are farmers. Some of you breed animals. Imagine if yours were the only cattle in the world. You had a handful of them. And you're going to make an offering to God. But you're not going to pick from the run-down, half-dead ones. You're going to take the best you've got and you're going to offer it. Imagine the trust you would have to have in God. There is nothing else on planet earth other than what gets off that boat. But Noah trusts God. Noah worships God because God has been gracious to Noah. Noah understands that what he has in front of him is not what he has. It is God. God has preserved this through Noah and Noah in faith says, I want to worship God because this is who you are. Noah doesn't come to God to worship Him because of what God's given him. There's not really a lot there. Noah's worshiping God because of who God is. There's a lesson there for us because so often when we worship God, we worship God in the sense of, well, God, you did this for me, so let me say thank you. God, you've given me this, so let me just praise you for this. Noah here is saying, God, you are gracious So I want to worship you. God, you are, so you deserve my worship. That is how we should worship Him as well. And if you worship God that way, then you will worship Him in times of plenty, and you will worship Him in times of calamity. You will worship Him when things are going well, and you will worship Him when the bottom drops out, because your worship is not contingent on your circumstances. Your worship rests in who God is. And that is what we see here in Noah who worships God because God has been gracious to him. And we see this grace in God's response to Noah. It says that the Lord is pleased by the sacrifice, the aroma of it. And so notice what he says in verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Now, you would suppose, you would imagine that the rest of that sentence would be something like this. The Lord looks, the Lord's pleased, the Lord says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Why? Because look at man. Look at how great Noah's turned out. I mean, he's worshiping me and this is how it should be. This is what Adam and Eve in the garden should have been doing. They should have been focused on worshiping me instead of being deceived and rebellious. And he's got it now. I've cleansed the earth. He's the only one, he and his family, he's got it right, so I'm not going to wipe him out. Why? Because he's so faithful. But that's not what God says. God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's not a logical sentence. You've done such a terrible job, let me reward you for it. Your kids come home from school and they've failed every class and they've managed to mess everything up and you say, all right, it's time for Disney World. No, you say there's going to be a reckoning now. 
And that's not what God does here. God says, I'm not going to wipe you off the face of the earth, but I should. (laughs) The intention of your heart is evil. He's saying to Noah, he's saying to man, there's still a heart issue here. That there's still sin that has to be dealt with here. We know from Genesis chapter 6, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth, that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. So God brings judgment. He cleanses the earth. Noah gets off the ark. Noah worships God. And God says what? The intention of man's heart is still evil. This tells us two very important theological truths we see throughout the Scripture. One is this, that God shows grace to undeserving man. In every page of Scripture, in every moment of my life and yours, God shows grace to undeserving man. Truth number two, man, while being undeserving that grace, in addition, is completely and totally depraved and lost and wicked and sinful. That that is what the Scripture gives us the picture of. We we are totally depraved. We, We are wicked people. And you may not act on that wickedness, but the Scripture says it is in your heart. And so we see events like we've seen this week, and people ask, why, why, why? The answer is in the Scripture, because the intentions of man's heart are wicked and evil. And you may see that evil in a terrorist who bombs people in a race. You may see that evil in Hitler and Nazi Germany. You may see that evil in the abortion clinic doctor. That evil says this, that man must be extinguished, that man is the enemy because it is the enemy who hates those who are in God's image and he will use whatever means he can in the wicked intentions of man's heart to wipe out those who bear the image of God. And our depravity says that that's who we are. And that does not mean that every one of us in this room are going to become bombers or murderers. But what it says is that's who we are in our heart. You think for a moment about your life and every intention of your heart and every thought you've ever had. Have you thought about killing? Have you thought even for a moment about just it would be better if something bad happened to this person? Have you thought, I wish this? I don't think anybody wants to stand up and give a testimony about that today. But what if we did? You would get to lunch on time. We would not last long. We went around this room and we just started saying, well, okay, I'm next. Uh, let me tell you every wicked intention of my heart. And I started listing everything I've ever thought this room would clear. It would clear because you would hear horrific things and it would probably clear because you don't want to go next. Because the intentions of our hearts are wicked. And this is why parents, grandparents, we don't have to teach our children how to disobey. We don't have to teach our children how to say no. None of you are going to run to the bookstore after the service today and say, if I could just just teach my child to disobey me one time, do you have a book on that? Five ways to raise disobedient children. I'd love to read that because my problem is my children always do the right thing. Anybody need that book? I realize, grandparents, you may think your grandkids are perfect. But whatever, regardless of what the bib and the t-shirt says, you and I know otherwise. Now you, like I, have had to teach my children how to obey. 
in our house, as our kids have grown up, we've had a saying, you need to obey right away, all the way, with a happy heart. They smile as they hear it because they've heard it a lot. Because you have to teach that. You have to teach. You, you need to obey right away. Why? The tendency of our heart is to say, well, I'll do that later. No, you need to do it now. We've got to teach that. You need to obey all the way. Why? Because our tendency is to go, well, I'll do that kind of the way I want to do it, kind of half-heartedly. Well, I started, but I didn't. No, you need to teach complete obedience, immediate obedience. You need to do that with a happy heart. Well, I'll do that, but I'm not going to be happy about it. So we have to teach those things. Why? Because our heart, our heart is depraved and there's wickedness and there's sin there. And it doesn't mean that every one of us is going to look as bad as we can look. But Jesus says that's why in our heart, our heart's the issue. Our heart's what needs to be replaced. And yet we try to think so well of ourselves and God reminds us here, don't think so well. And in fact, He says that the intention of man's heart are evil from His youth. Says this isn't something you just learn how to be bad. There's a heart issue here. And it needs to be dealt with. And we'll see this as we continue through Genesis. I'm still trying to figure out how to deal with some passages. Because you think you've seen wickedness so far? There's some really messed up stuff in Genesis. That's why your children's Bibles don't have a whole lot about Genesis sometimes. They skip all kinds of stuff. There's some messed up stuff here. There's some stuff I'm going to have to say the week ahead of time. Okay, parents, get ready for this, or I've got to figure out how to present this, because this is what the Scripture says, because it just gives us a picture of the reality of men's hearts and the fruit of that, that, that we are just depraved people. And yet in the midst of that, we see, when we see that we're depraved, we recognize how entirely gracious God is. If you never realize how wicked we are, then you will not realize how entirely gracious God is. Because God looks at this mess and says, I'm going to make a covenant relationship with that. And that's what He does. Because He's gracious to us. And we see that grace in His covenant here in Genesis 8 and 9. We also see this. In addition to God's covenant being gracious, God's covenant values life. God's covenant values life. We see this repeated in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9. We see some things that are repetitious here. They're going back to the mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God told Adam and Eve that. Now He's telling Noah and his sons that. Why? Because God values life and God has given the command for man to produce life. A very simple command. Be fruitful, multiply, go have a lot of babies, is what God's saying here. Fill the earth that they might worship me. That's what God's telling Noah. He's saying, I value life, and Noah, priority number one for you is, as you worship me, you will do that by filling the earth, producing life. And we see how this connects to what we are called to be as a New Testament church, in addition to fill the earth, have lots of babies, do these things. There's a discipleship component here because Jesus looks to His disciples and He says, go to the nations and teach them, disciple them, produce, multiply, fill the earth with those who will glorify God in Christ. Share the gospel with the nations. Be fruitful and multiply. Produce life, produce spiritual life. 
That is what I think we see here in this value of life. Not just produce it, but protect it. God tells Noah in verses 2 through 4, you can have these animals, Noah. He says, they're, they're going to fear you. Why? Because you're going to be coming after them with a knife. They better fear you. God had told Adam and Eve that they were to have dominion. Now this has shifted a little bit and God's telling Noah, you, you can eat the animals. They're going to fear you. Why? Because you're going to be trying to eat them and coming after them in this way. God is saying, I am giving this to you. But, but then He says to him this stipulation. You can eat them, but stay away from flesh while it still has its life in it. Even in the animal kingdom, God is saying there's something special about life blood. And then he uses this to then help Noah see the value of life and what is required for those who take a life. God here says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed, for God made man in his own image. God here is saying, if you take a life, your life will be required. I've had this conversation many times with friends who share different worldviews, and the conversation is this. I am unapologetically pro-life. And I also believe that there are situations where we should have capital punishment. And the conversation I've had is that, or the accusation has been, well, that's just inconsistent. How can you value life on one hand and not value on the other? I say, no, it's not inconsistent. It's consistent. If you truly value life, then what price do you put on it? Just recently, one of the opportunities I had on this last mission trip was Jonathan, the guy I was with, has served in different areas of the world. In one area in particular, he was serving as a missionary. He told me that part of his daily routine is he would always make sure he had a certain amount of cash with him when he traveled. And my thought was, yeah, you never know if you're going to find a bank or those things. He goes, no, no, no. The reason I did that was because the area of the world he was in was extremely extremely populated and he says inevitably you're going to run over somebody's sheep or their goat or something and there's already a, a agreed upon understanding if you kill someone's sheep you're going to pay them x number of dollars on the spot in that moment that's the price of that livestock that that's what you're going to owe them in that moment you don't negotiate it you don't arbitrate it you don't go to somewhere and get it sealed you do it right there it is what it is worth for the life of that animal. So what is the price we would put then on a person? Well, what is their life worth? If I come in to the church a little after we wrap up and I say to you, I apologize, but I have killed one of your loved ones in the parking lot. But here's a check. How's that going to go? You say that to me, I can tell you it's not going to go real well. You can't write me a check and pay for the life of my wife or one of my kids. And if you could, what, what would be the price you would put on that? If you're a parent with children the ages of mine, you, have, you probably pay attention when you hear these statistics of, you know, nowadays from the time a child's born to the time they go get through college, it's going to cost, you know, $80 trillion to raise them or whatever the number is. So is that the number we go with? No. What God says here in the text is that man is made in my image and his value, his value 
your life will be required. Up until this point, we have seen murder. We have seen Cain kill his brother. And Cain lives. God allows Cain to live. Cain is fearful that others will take his life. Cain lives. We see one of Cain's descendants, Lamech, who boasts about killing a young man who struck him. Lamech lives. God is coming now and he is giving a law, a law that will give many more stipulations as the law unfolds. And he says, no more. Not just is this a deterrent for you not to kill, but this is a consequence because this is what life is worth. And God tells Noah, he reminds him after telling him this, verse 7, You, Noah, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply. And he's saying, Noah, you're not to be in the business of taking life. You're being in the business of producing life and protecting life. And that is why we as Christians should be a people who not only produce life, but we should be the ones who protect life. Every single life. It's part of the mandate God has given us. But God doesn't just leave this entirely up to us. We see God is in the business of ultimately preserving life. And that's the last point I want to point out to you about His covenant. Point three. God's covenant preserves His creation. God does not leave this entirely in our hands. No, God in His covenant makes sure that man understands that ultimately He is going to preserve life. And the way He's going to do that is through verses 8 through 17 where He seems to repeat Himself and say, okay, I'm going to establish this covenant and I'm not going to kill you. But, but notice, notice what He says will be the indicator of His preservation of life. Verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God is speaking here of a rainbow. Most of us know this. We think about this. We remind ourselves when we see the rainbow after the storms, God's not going to flood the earth. What an encouraging thing that is. But that's not all there is to this. In the Hebrew, this word bow is the same Hebrew word used for bow throughout the Old Testament. And here's what it is. It is an instrument used by a hunter or an assassin to take life. And God is saying this. He is saying, because of your sin, I should pull back the bow and I should take every one of you out. But I'm hanging my bow up. Some of you are hunters. Some of you are bow hunters. If I come to your house and I sit in your living room and you've got that, that bow hanging on your wall, it's not real intimidating. I'm not scared of that. I walk into your house and you've got that bow in your hand pulled back with an arrow in it pointed at my face. That's going to be a little different. I'm going to be really scared. God hangs his bow on the wall. God sets it in the sky, pointed upwards with no arrow in it. But it won't stay there. Because God will take that bow down and He will draw that arrow back. And at Calvary, He will shoot that arrow at Christ. And He will shoot another, and He will shoot another that you and I rightly deserve. That's what the Gospel tells us. 
God here is saying, I will withhold my wrath for now. I'm not going to wipe you out. You don't need to be worried every time it rains that the arrows are coming down. But don't you believe for a second that the arrows aren't going to come down. They're going to come. And they're going to come against one who does not deserve them that you might have life. And that is why Isaiah prophetically says in Isaiah 53, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we, we, we don't deserve it. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That is the Gospel. God placed it all on Christ that we deserve. He hung His bow in the sky to remind us that we can have peace with Him, but the peace will come through One who will go to the cross for us, who will be pierced for us, who will bear the due penalty of sin for us. God will pick up that bow again. Because the Scripture tells us there will be a day of reckoning. And for those who have not entered into the ark, for those who have not come into that covenant relationship with God through Christ, we will experience the full wrath of God's fury rightly and justly because of our sin. But the call of Scripture is this. There's one who's felt the piercing arrow on your behalf already. And his name is Jesus. And the offer to you is the offer to us all. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn to God. Respond to the gospel. For those who have perhaps this Lord's Day, you need to remember that. You need to remember the sin in your life that perhaps no one else knows of, that you are running from, hiding from, covering, whatever it might be. Christ has dealt with it on the cross. Perhaps today you need to bring it to the light and experience the cleansing work of Christ who is in the business of doing this. You're not. You are ill-equipped to clean up your life. This is what He does. This is what the Gospel offers us. This is why God unleashed the fury of His bow on Christ. Because He is righteous and He is the one through His faith and obedience that we might be saved. Just like the picture we see of Noah and the ark. Through the obedience and faith of one, many are saved. Through the obedience and faith in Christ, we might be saved as well. If you have not, repent and believe. And if you have, guess what? Repent and believe and have faith. And walk with the one who has borne God's wrath on your behalf you would stand with me and pray. Father, we thank You for what we see in Your Word this morning that the bow hangs in the sky. We thank You, Lord, that Christ has bore the penalty of our sin. And so, Father, I pray our response to that would be the response of Noah as he gets off the ark, that we would worship You the Father, in these inviting moments during this time of response, Lord, that our hearts would be filled with gratitude and overwhelmed at the grace You offer us in Christ. That if any is trying to live the Christian life in their own effort, Lord, they would repent of that foolishness and walk in faith with Christ. If any is yet to 
bend his knee to the cross, Lord, that they would repent and confess and believe and be saved. Lord, wherever we might find ourselves this Lord's day, in many, many different places, you are in the same place and you never change. And you offer us the opportunity, Lord. You call us to repentance and to faith. And I pray that would be our response this Lord's day. Thank you, Father, for your word, for the reminder from it, what Christ has bore for us. Help us then to walk in faith in him and live in response to this. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.